This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been waiting for this conversation. I am so excited about Emma Klein's new novel, The Guest. You may remember The Girls was a big deal, but it was also a Discover Great New Writers pick back when we called the program that. So I'm super excited to see Emma. And also there's a story collection that maybe not all of you know about called Daddy, which if you haven't read, go read that too. But we're really going to talk about the guests today because I need to talk to you about Alex. My first note says, who is this girl? <laughs> and this book is so great. It was totally worth the wait. I love this novel. But where, where, where did Alex come from, Emma? <laughs> yeah, the book definitely started with Alec. I think I've always been drawn to characters like her that are kind of these ciphers or, I mean, con artist is maybe too strong of a term for her, but it's, I don't know, like Tom Ripley, I feel like is a classic literature con artist where it's, it's just so fun to watch them at work. And I'm always interested in what are the narrative tricks that allow you to kind of root for this person who's operating so outside the bounds of our agreed upon moral universe. You have this great line about Alex that's early in the book that you say, that was the point of Alex to offer up no friction whatsoever. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Who is this girl? What's going on? And you have had a couple of early conversations. I know there we have exclusive material in our edition, our VNN edition, and it's a conversation with you and your editor, Kate Medina, who I'm very fond of. And you talk about trauma math. And I'm telling you now, I am stealing that phrase from you. With all apologies, I'm stealing that phrase from you. But can you talk about what that is and how that relates to Alex? Because it is such a great idea. Yeah, I'm sure I stole that from someone else, but I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> but so yeah, steal away. With Alex, I was thinking a lot about how with characters like her, people who are doing things that maybe we don't understand or we think are so far outside our moral code, there's a tendency to kind of want a very neat explanation for why they are the way they are. And I often think it becomes this form of trauma math, which is, you know, X and Y happen to them. So of course, like Z, like they are this way, like this explains everything. And I really wanted to resist that with this character and kind of allow her to be more complicated and you know, not have that one-to-one math. So it did kind of become, okay, if there's not going to be any backstory, I mean, there's little pinpricks of backstory, which I was trying to calibrate pretty carefully. It's like, okay, is this even too much or too little? You know, it's almost like acupuncture where you're just placing these very like tiny needles. But yeah, just thinking about how to display or describe a character using negative space almost. I love that about this book. It's a little dreamy, kind of like pieces of the girls were a little dreamy. The stuff that was set sort of when Evie's a teenager, there's that sort of, wait a minute, where are we? And who is this girl? And do I trust her? Because I like her, I think, but I'm more fascinated by her. I will say I'm way more fascinated by Alex than anything. Because again, I think my first note in the book is who is this girl? And it's maybe uh-huh. six six pages in. I'm just like, uh-huh. what is going on? Uh-huh. And I'm going to give up a tiny bit of the story only because this is going to air on your pub date. And um, so Alex is 22. Mm -hmm. She is having a rough spot in her life. Let's say she's been making her money as essentially a sex worker. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. she's 
not quite out of the game entirely, but she's been evicted. Things are not going well. She's not in a great space, but she finds this dude who says, come out to my house in the Hamptons for August and you can stay. And then he changes his mind. And suddenly we have this six day frame, which I love that taut, taut, tight, like this is, this is it. We're not jumping around in time, which is a great device. Don't misunderstand me, but six days, she just has to make it to Labor Day because Alex has decided that everything will be fine if she and this dude patch things up. And wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Emma, this novel and what Alex does and the way she slips and slides. I mean, that Ripley analogy is perfect, obviously. But you start with Alex and you've got to find a way to put her in a pressure cooker, right? So part of it is the six days, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then part of it is everything else. (laughs) (laughs) You do a lot in less than 300 pages. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear, I guess, yeah, I was thinking a lot about how to pressurize Alex and her situation. It is almost like, okay, and how can I turn the screws on this character in every scene? Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, a lot of my friends were like, this was such an anxiety-inducing read, which is funny, kind of, yeah. I can sort of see that, but I have to say, I was really just much more fascinated because Alex has these ideas of what has to happen next or what should the, re- you know, what the result should be kind of thing. And I really, really do not want to give stuff up. So I'm I'm sounding like <laughs> I'm dancing a little bit because there's so much that happens. Early on, as I was reading, I thought, oh, Alex just wants to belong to this very rarefied world. And it's not quite that, actually. It's more complicated than that. She really is looking to survive and she sees the world as being a very transactional place. And did that idea come with the creation of Alex or did you find that as you worked your way through the narrative? I mean, I think a lot of the creation of Alex is, I I think she embodies a lot of the topics and kind of world that I'm naturally drawn to as a writer, just even thinking about gender and sex and power and kind of creating this character who amplifies those concerns, like making her a sex worker, like literalizes the idea of transactions. And so, yeah, it does tint the way she sees the world. And in some way I wanted her to be extremely perceptive about the world around her. And to be able to kind of immediately download all the social information, but then at the same time to have this blank spot at her center, like this strange blindness to her own selfhood and kind of putting those two things together. Yeah. And that there's this sense that her survival is external, like just day to day. How am I going to get through this day? Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? My phone's not working. But then also I wanted there to feel like almost this existential like hunger in her where she does kind of feel like a ghost or someone who's not fully real and that there's something driving her forward in that way. Like the fear of this void, I guess, at her center. It's not really taken very seriously by any of the people who have money or actual power. And she's really good at code switching. She's really good at getting into spaces. There's a moment where she gets into the club. I don't mean a dance club. I mean a a club, a beach club out on the island. The way she does it and what she does when she's there is so 
perfect and not everyone can do that kind of blending in and that kind of slipping into a situation and it's great it's really really great because no one notices yeah I was thinking kind of about the weird power that comes I mean so she's a young woman who you know is mostly not taken seriously by the people around her and especially kind of the older men who see her as like a social decoration almost like not fully a person and in that way she does get a strange power from that invisibility because she sees everything people act in a way in front of her that they might not if they thought she was you know quote unquote a real person like that that there is a strange power that invisibility can confer on you i know i used dreamy a couple of minutes ago to describe the narrative but Alex is also unmoored and that gives her a mobility that none of the other characters have. And some of them want, I mean, some of them would, if they knew sort of how she lived her life and the fact that she had, you know, no responsibilities and everything else, I think they would choose that path. Yeah. Can we talk about the sense of being unmoored? And yeah, it does go back to the trauma math, but as you say, it's really hard to create someone. It's like that acupuncture, right? where you want people to understand her and her situation, but you don't want to do backstory would have really changed this book. It really would have changed this book. Yeah. I found with this, you know, the girls was so much the present, the past, it was so much interplay between them and it spanned decades. And, you know, there are all these kind of balls in the air and, you know, swooping around through time. And I think I really wanted to have the world of this novel be much more contained and sort of, okay, we're not going to leave this, this very prescribed universe. We're not going to, yeah, see her childhood or anything like that. But it did feel like it was a lot more balancing. Like it got out of whack more easily. I don't know, in the drafting process, it's like one too many scenes. Like I really felt the tension like sag. It felt like a lot of construction work almost. But I think in thinking about like how to delineate her without getting to rely on backstory, it became a lot about, all right, let's kind of drop behind her eyes, which is close third is so good for that. And maybe we'll get information about her by what she notices in her room. Like, what does she see when she walks in? Like, how is she filtering the world? And can I draw her character that way? Yeah, it was a fun challenge as a writer. She's very smart. She is very, very smart. She can read a room so quickly. But the problem is she doesn't always know what to do (laughs) with the information she has. And, you know, one of the things you've always written about, at least from reader's perspective, this idea of power, right? You talk about it in the girls, and certainly the stories in Daddy, right? All about the power. And the guest is so much about power as well, who has it, what it really is, what it looks like, what it smells like, how it behaves, all of these things. Yeah. But you do it in a way where you don't sort of approach it head on. And I love that because, I mean, anyone who's read Daddy will see what you're talking about when you say negative space, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the nanny, like we have an idea of what happened, but like right. you never come out and say, totally. oh, by the way, this is what happened. This is when it happened and everything yeah. blew up. It's like, 
she's at her mom's college roommates (laughs) and she's flipping through some memories or like, you know, it's all of that idea of the hinge moment, right? Like before and after and the guest is so packed with these hinge moments. And sometimes Alex gets it. And wow, sometimes. Yeah. Doesn't. Yeah, I think that was the thing of kind of wanting her to be very smart in some ways and then also so delusional in other ways and also kind of a self-saboteur. Yeah, I was thinking about kind of that uh, horror movie trope of like the calls coming from inside (laughs) the house. Like oftentimes her biggest enemy is herself. There's this sense that she just has to do these things even though they're going to make things so much worse for her. She doesn't know how to stop herself. Yeah. I mean, that was the impression I got where there are a couple of moments where I was like, oh man, she's, oh, she's going to do it. Oh, she's yeah. Gonna do it. And she does. And you're yeah. just like, oh, that was a very bad idea. And of course, <laughs> you know, it keeps the story moving. So sorry, Alex. Right. Sorry, right. you make bad decisions. It makes for <laughs> yeah. great reading. It makes for right. really, really great reading. But there's a certain amount of control that you have to have as the writer. There's a certain amount of control she really wants as a character and does not have and control I mean I guess it goes hand in hand with power right but it's something that Evie's looking for in the girls as well like even Susanna a little bit uh, Susanna excuse me in the girls as well like everyone's looking for control no one really gets it and you as the writer though always have to have it so can we talk about process for a second you you dip into it a little bit but I mean everyone who has read you yells about your sentences right they're fabulous they're so good but it takes a lot of work to get there And I'm just wondering, we know you start with character. We know that you wanted to stay in the immediate moment, but how does the rest of it happen? Yeah, I think so with this character, a lot of the questions that I have about like, what's the style of the book going to be? Like this character is in many ways disassociated from herself. How will the writing style reflect that disassociation? Coming up with the prose style, the I mean, and coming up makes it almost sound too, like I sat down and really thought about it. I feel like there's something a lot more intuitive that happens below my consciousness. And it's just like almost trying out a voice and seeing if it feels right. There was a one draft where I tried first person. Often I find that if I'm really procrastinating, I create this busy work for myself where suddenly oh it should be in first person so then I can waste you know all this going through and changing (laughs) everything you know it's like but it it was so immediately obvious that it would ask too much of the character in terms of the knowledge that they would have about themselves and the reader would be too close and I needed that distance of close third With this book, I was thinking a lot. I had written all those stories and I love short stories and Mm -hmm. I love the kind of tension and the sense that you're dropped into someone's life and then kind of pulled out of it just as quickly. And thinking about how I could bring some of that tension to a novel or try to hopefully, and then think about, for me, sometimes just having a, even a very sketchy structure like, okay, in every scene, she's going to try and find a body of water where yeah. she's going to get in. Like, it, it can be the, the barest little gesture at organizing. And that sometimes is enough to go on. Which brings me to The Swimmer, which I reread. Uh, and I yeah. love that story. And it was a great excuse to reread it because I was like, oh, 
And I I remember when this book sold and I was like, yeah, I really need to read this book. I really, <laughs> really need this manuscript. And not everyone knows the swimmer. They should. Everyone should know the story. And not everyone knows Cheever. So can you talk a little bit about your love for that story and the connection and how it sort of inspired a little bit of Alex? Yeah, I love John Cheever just in general, especially his journals. I feel like it's the book I kind of return to the most. I'm just so moved by it. And there's something he does where his stories are so generally so realistic. You know, they're very in some ways traditional, but there is almost this edge of otherworldliness. And in The Swimmer, it's really surreal. God, it's one of those things where I read it. It's like I almost am responding more to the emotional temperature of it and less actual facts. But it's Ned, right? Yeah, yeah. Nettie Merrill. <laughs> Nettie Merrill, who thinks his life is okay. <laughs> yes. He's kind of a happy, yeah, happy guy drinking. You know, it's a Connecticut or whatever, you know, summer's afternoon. And just this feeling that his life can go on forever, mm-hmm. you know, this upward trajectory. And he decides he's going to make his way home by swimming in the swimming pools of his neighbors, making his way back to his house. And at first it's kind of this picaresque, like he's having these kind of jolly seeming adventures. And then things start to curdle in this very otherworldly way. You know, people start to not recognize him. People are reacting to him as if he'd done something, but he doesn't know what. Just like this absolute nightmare logic, this feeling that the the world has completely reordered itself and you've missed the shift. And it ends with him back at his home finally after this odyssey. And his home is boarded up and it's, you know, winter or somehow decades, it feels like, have passed. And he looks inside and the house is empty. And it just is this absolute sense of desolation. And kind of losing your moorings in this existential way. And I found it so terrifying. I I kind of knew that I wanted to end the guest in a similar emotional Mm -hmm. territory. That feeling of kind of somehow you're in a nightmare and you can't quite account for how you got there. I will say the ending is perfect. Only everything else, Alex, like it's just the ending was so satisfying. And I wasn't entirely sure where you were. I had some ideas of where you were going, but just that last, it, yeah, it's really satisfying. It's really, really satisfying. <laughs> I think not everyone knows though. you started publishing stories in places like Tin House when you were in high school, which I love. I love this part of it. I love this part of the story. And Marion, the story that you won the Plimpton Prize for, which is the Paris Review Prize for stories, which I'd love to shout out because I love the Paris Review and I love short stories too. Marion, you can see the origins of the girls in Marion, which is included in Daddy. So again, if you haven't read Daddy, go read Daddy. I really like short stories. <laughs> I really, really like short stories. And obviously readers of the guest will see sort of the echoes of some of the ideas of Cheever. You know, it's nine pages. The Swimmer is nine pages. And it's... It's a wild nine pages. I also forgot that he likes long paragraphs. Structurally, there's some interesting choices that he makes in that book. But, you know, you said it a little earlier, stories sort of influenced how you were thinking about structuring this narrative and whether you could sustain that tension for the length of a novel. And it is still a relatively short novel. But 
how long have you been walking around with the idea for the guests sort of in the back of your brain? Yeah, so I actually started the earliest draft. I mean, draft is generous of a word, you know, 20 pages in 2016 before the girls came out. It was sort of started working on afterwards. And, you know, her name was Alex. I knew that I wanted to set it in Long Island. I'd never been out there before I went, maybe when I was 24 or 25, just for a weekend. Is it a friend and his wife? Have you spent any time? Not in a really long time. And I have to tell you, it's not the first place I want to go. No, it's, it's a very specific kind of experience. It's a very, very specific, specific kind of place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, it's not really for me. I think coming from California, there's just maybe, not, I can't think of an equivalent. But there is no equivalent. No. California. No. And so to, to come upon this very closed community, it felt like that where there were a lot of overt and less overt ways of delineating who should be there and who shouldn't. And this kind of microcosm of New York that had reproduced itself to scale, you know, replicated all of these power dynamics and class dynamics. It just felt very, I don't know, I I really wanted to see like a wild card character let loose in this place that, that was so ordered and so much about keeping people out. He has a little bit of a chaos agent there when she talks her way into that rental, the group rental. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing, thinking about it because I'm like, how do you not notice? And yet <laughs> she can do this. Alex can do this. She can slip from place to place to place, which brings me to the title. I love the title of this book. I love the package on this book. The jacket is oh, good, perfect. And I know I've used that word now three times in the show, and it's not a word I throw around. It's just not a word I throw around because sometimes it's hard to get jackets right for books like this, and it's hard to get titles yeah. for books like this. So can we talk about that piece of it too? Because definitely it matters. Yeah, it really does. I feel like jackets, you know, it is the one opportunity you get. I mean, hopefully, and oftentimes, you know, you don't get a say in it as a writer, but I've been really lucky in that. I have had to say, especially with the girls and the guest, you know, to kind of think, all right, what outfit are you going to send it out to the world Mm -hmm. wearing? And we worked with this amazing designer, Oliver Monday. And, you know, we had gone through so many ideas before that. Uh, I think sometimes it's like you want to be so literal. You're like, okay, it's the guests. Like, we need to see this. We need to see that. And then he, he kind of came up with this image of this hand and it seemed to encompass all the facets of this character. Like the the hand is asking for something, mm-hmm. also offering something. There's something unsettling about it. This gesture of like coming closer. I don't know. I, I really loved it. And I loved the type that he chose. He and I talked about a lot of those novels, like play it as it lays of like a woman unraveling and I feel like that font is very much of that era of like seven <laughs> novels of, of an unraveling, which I really enjoyed. And then with the title, you know, for a long time, the word document just, again, it's like one of those things just for myself. Mm-hmm. It was a swimmer. I okay. knew I wouldn't be able to call it. Yeah, no. <laughs> but it, it was kind of a nice organizing principle in my mind. And then, yeah, coming up with the title, it was thinking a lot about, right. I knew I wanted it to be about Alex and to refer to her 
and thinking about, okay, what's her role in this world? And the guest, again, is like, just hit right after trying so many other, so many other titles. The whole experience of reading The Guest, too. And I mean, I didn't want it to end, but I'd never really experienced anything like it before. And, you know, I read a lot and I was just I was completely mesmerized by what you were doing. And I was just like, where is this going? Who are these people? What is this woman going to do? Like, I couldn't stop engaging with what you were doing. Like, even when I put it down, because, you know, life, (laughs) someone has to do the dishes, (laughs) like life. (laughs) There were some characters that I felt sort of immense sympathy for, like Jack, for instance. I mean, I'm going to let listeners meet Jack for themselves, but like that, that character specifically, I was like, oh boy, you've got some stuff happening. Mm-hmm. And then there are other characters where you're like, well, maybe something bad will happen to this person because <laughs> <laughs> we're readers, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we may not be all totally altruistic in our reading. But for you, as you're creating this, I mean, you're balancing some beautiful spaces, whether it's houses or like the landscape or the beach or the water. I mean, there's a lot of just wonderful, wonderful description of beautiful places and some really ugly people. But how do you keep it from tipping into a little bit of caricature? Because you are writing about ridiculous amounts of money. I mean, just wild amounts of money. I think it's almost, at least for me, I think one thing I lean on a little bit is kind of softening the edges of reality slightly so it's it's almost like instead of shining like a very bright crime scene light on everything it can be a little softer and more diffuse and I don't need to pin down every edge which I feel like sometimes it can be too harsh and too I don't know I I like the soft edges yeah and then in terms of writing about like this milieu and this level of wealth and power I really wanted to make sure that it didn't feel didactic and you know us obviously you know hopefully no one is reading this and thinking god it must be so great to live in the Hamptons or whatever but to kind of let the critique come more organically through what she's noticing and not have it necessarily connect to like a thesis statement about rich people are x or this character is all bad, this character mm-hmm. is all good. Like in general, I I think I'm always trying to complicate things or tropes and like undercut whatever is expected. And a lot of it is kind of pulling myself, like what's the first thing that I think would happen? Okay, and then actually taking a look at that and being like, does that make sense? Or is that just this kind of well-trod path that our brains go down in? And what would it look like to subvert that in some way? It feels like the people have more sway over the place than the place has over the people. I mean, sometimes, you know, place, it can be its own character. And I think in this case, it kind of is. But the people are just so clear, like even Margaret, even Robert, even people you don't meet for like really, really long periods or like Helen's husband. (laughs) (laughs) They're really clear, though, even if we only see them for what's a relatively brief moment. Also, George and George's wife. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was always kind of waiting to see who would show up next because to me, all of these people felt like they were in exactly the right place. Yeah. Oh, and good. they knew it. They knew their roles. And some people, you know, are up here. And some, like, I worried a little bit about the nanny after the mm-hmm. whole club thing. I was like, mm, 
I hope the nanny's okay. <laughs> and I, it, nothing bad happens. This is not talented, Mr. Ripley. There is no murder. No, no murder. <laughs> There's no murder. But <laughs> I did, I had a moment where I was just like, oh, are there going to be consequences for the nanny? Because even when Alex has consequences, and even when other characters have consequences that are sort of hinted at, she sort of decides whether or not the consequences matter, which seems like a slightly dangerous way to live. Totally. Yeah. I thought a lot about with this book, like, all right, in what ways are certain relationships or certain lifestyles, these like fantasies or false realities that require all of this effort and labor to maintain and often effort and labor from other people in Simon's situation, this effort and labor that Alex puts in into making him feel that this is a normal relationship or, you know, that he's desirable and she's with him because she loves him or, you know, whatever version of Mm -hmm. false relationship. And in the case of other characters in the novel, it's all right. My life is frictionless and easy, but there's all this labor that has to happen from employees in order to maintain that false reality. So I liked the idea of putting Alex with those characters, like Nicholas, somebody else whose job it is to perform in some way. And, you know, interestingly enough, everyone who has money, they're all great, according (laughs) to everyone. And I love the fact that that sort of pops up in a couple of different places where Alex is pushing and she's like, no, 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 you're not telling me the truth. You're not telling me. Alex has a very loose relationship with the truth. Uh So the idea that she's chasing it from other people and almost wanting, like, she knows something is off. She knows nothing is perfect. And everyone's like, no, they're great. They're great. What are you talking about? They're great. Those moments in the book, I'm just like, oh, Alex, you are not getting the answer you want. Yeah. It's just yeah. not happening. I love those moments. I know we talked a little bit about Cheever, obviously. Didion certainly plays into, I think, a little bit of your development as a writer as well. You do have an MFA from Columbia, but can we talk about some of the writers who helped make Emma Klein, Emma Klein? Yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like Didion... Certainly. I think coming from, were you born in California? No, I'm in East Coast. I'm yeah. ex-Bostonian. Ex-Bostonian. Okay. I feel like as a Californian, reading her in high school, just realizing that you could write about the place you were from that way, um, that you could write about yourself was really kind of startling in the best way. And I think Mary Gateskill is a writer I return to so often. I'm rereading one of her story collections called Because She Wanted To. And she just, I feel like she has a channel to some other reality. Mm -hmm. Just even the way she describes like how a gaze falls in a room almost as like a physical like light. I'm really always taken with her writing and return to it a lot. I mean, Deborah Eisenberg's stories, I think are so great. The first phrase I'm thinking of is like stuffed full of life. They're just so filled up mm-hmm. with with the stuff of life. But they also, there's this control, even though the effect is often, you're like, wait, we started in a cafe in New York. Like suddenly we're in a jungle. Like just the way she carries you through a story mm-hmm. is so chaotic. But it obviously is like this great writerly mind at work using a lot of control totally so i also didn't know you were doing this this is the picture books gagosian gallery thing still happening are you still yeah can we talk about that too because it sounds like a really great project and i just didn't know you were doing this so 
It's words and art. It's cool. Yes. I feel like it's another great way to procrastinate on my own writing, (laughs) which I love. I'm always interested in the old new ones. But yeah, it came out of, so I'd been asked to write some catalog essays for artists. So writing like an essay about a show of paintings, which was always so fun. It felt like such a fun challenge to try and translate this one medium into the written word. And I thought, what if the roles were reversed in this case? What if a painter or a sculptor got a short story or a novella and responded to it in whatever way they wanted to? So I worked with Peter Mendelssohn, who's a great writer, painter, and book designer, and like concert pianist. He's one mm-hmm. of the who's just good at everything, and it's shocking and amazing. But he designed the look of these books and sort of came up with kind of the whole, just how they would look, how they would feel. So the it starts with a novella by a writer, mm-hmm. and then the work that the artist has created in response comes as like a poster with the book. Um, And our first pairing was Otessa Moshfig with this British painter, Issy Wood. Mm -hmm. Sybil Everett, this really funny, weird novella with Richard Prince. Sam Lipsight wrote a really, I love Sam's. Yeah, he's the bone. Oh my God. So this novella, I was like crying. I was laughing so hard and it, felt really special to be able to publish work that I like so much that I think does have a hard time finding a home in contemporary publishing. I know like I wrote a novella and it's, I I can see that a publisher is not that excited about putting out a, a novella. I love novellas. I really, really love novellas. And Thank I think you. it's really hard. We need to recognize this. It's really hard to write tight, short, work, whether it's a story or a novella, it's actually really, really hard. And I think there are people who look at something little and just they're like, what do you do? Toss that off. And like, that's not how this works. Yeah. You actually have to like chip away and chip away and chip away and chip away until you get this thing. And a tiny hundred page thing is really hard to do well. It's also partially why we don't see a lot of them because they're really hard to do well. Yeah. And it's just been such a joy to to work with like Joy Williams. We have one coming out soon with Joy Williams and the painter Walton Ford, who it turns out they had both been major fans of each other separately. And now you get to matchmake in this way. That's so fun. I love that. I really, really, really love that. And they are beautiful. I will say (laughs) I've been taking a look at them and they are great. They are so cool. But what's next? This is the third book in a three book deal. And we have two novels and a story collection. I'm hoping there are more stories, but you know, what's next? Yeah, I'm working on something now, which I feel like I've always gotten this advice from writers and it's always hard to actually follow it. Mm -hmm. You know, you finish something and be working on something else during the publication of a book, just because otherwise, you know, you go into a neurotic spiral. But this time I'm actually doing it, which is great. Uh, And it is nice to have this other world churning as this book comes out. Do you miss Alex? I don't know. There was something so fun about writing a character like her. Mm -hmm. I think, again, it's like dropping into a consciousness that is always going to make kind of the wrong decision or or do the thing that you're like, oh, don't do that. There's something so fun about it. I definitely think about her still. Because I feel like Evie, like that world was that, the girls, I'm sorry, I'm referring to the narrator of the girls if you haven't read it. Like, I feel like that was totally complete. 
And just the way the guest ends, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to be walking around with this book for a while. When we turn off the recording, I do have a question because I'm super not spoiling this, but I, I have an idea of something. And I just, since you're the one who created all of this, I just want to <laughs> run it by you, but we're super not spoiling this book. You know, I knew this was going to happen. I knew we were going to bump up against time, but I want to go back to trauma math for a second, because I think there's something really important that connects all three of the books, the girls, daddy, and the guest. And, you know, this idea that women have to have something horrible happen to them, and it is mostly women characters that this happens to, like, let's not pretend, women and girls. And this idea that you have to have a horrific backstory in order to be complicated or messy or human. And can we talk about that for a second? Because before I let you go, because I mean, that just feels so important in so many ways, and we don't really ever talk about it. Yeah. I think I'm always interested in what are the stories that people tell themselves about themselves and about their lives and about the things that have happened to them. And I do think there's a way in which the kind of trauma victim narrative can be very seductive. And it is one of the ways that as a culture, we give power to women. It's like you have to display your trauma. You have to like bleed for us and then we'll allow you some version of power, but then we'll also maybe use it against you if it's convenient in other ways. It's a complicated relationship that we have. And so I think, yeah, I'm I'm curious about characters who are kind of actively deciding not to see themselves that way, even if the reader might see them as a victim in this situation or as a perpetrator, like kind of what ways are they navigating their lives via these self-delusions, which I guess we're all doing to some extent. We are to a certain extent, but I do think that you, like, I recognize your voice when I see something by you on the page and I read it. I like, I know I'm reading something by Emma Klein, which I really, half the time I can just see your name and be like, yeah, I'm reading that. Thank you very much. (laughs) And I love having that connection to the work. I think just knowing that I am not going to be the same after I read it, knowing that I am going to be a little uncomfortable while I'm reading. Anxious is not the word I would use to describe how I felt while I was reading the guest, but I was fascinated. And yeah, I was uncomfortable a couple of times and it was great. And I did not want to put this book down. It's so unique, this book. I mean, I really have not experienced something like this in a really long time. So I just, I want to stress that to people. Like if psychological thrillers are your thing and you really have not touched on literary fiction, you do actually want to read the guest. This book is wild. It's just Emma. It's really wild. (laughs) I love this book. I totally love this book. And I really, really super don't want to spoil it for listeners. So that's kind of all I'm going to say. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma Klein, for joining us on Port Over. The guest is out now. So's Daddy. So's the girls. And if you haven't read those two, go back and read those two. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Guest. I'm Mark. I'm here at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm here from near my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. Excellent. Glad to have you back. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in because, well, mainly because I'm very excited to read The Guest. I love Emma Klein. The Girls was probably my favorite book when it came out, and I'm always eager to read more of her stuff. So, I was thinking about sort of slow burn thriller um, 
layered psychology and just great character study. And it made me think of a book that I read a few years back that still I think has a fish hook in me because I think about it from time to time. And that is Bitter Orange by Claire Fuller. It just got under my skin. Uh, It is a very deep character study and it's filled with a lot of nuance and these small details and asides that just create this unsettling peek into a fractured trio. Specifically one part of that trio, and that is Frances, our central character. Uh, She has arrested development to a degree that is unhealthy. Self-obsession without that nice complementary self-awareness and a boatload of mother issues. She's taken up residence in an old English mansion and she is hired to research the grounds, essentially. And this is where she meets uh, Kara and Peter, who are a couple, they are pleasant, they are charismatic, they are more than willing to fold Francis into their world. And I really can't say much more than that because I would spoil quite a bit. This trio of people have a lot going on that we find as the book progresses to a degree that is... um, pretty unsettling. The book sinks into my bones. Um, The prose is really strong. The characters are fascinating and the building suspense is absolutely earned. It's just a strange, fantastic book. So if you need something a little creepy, but mostly just really well written in a great way, check out Bitter Orange by Claire Fuller. Jamie, what do you have for us? Well, uh, when I learned we were going to talk about Emma Klein and the guests today, I was extremely excited because I knew right off the bat uh, that I would get to recommend one of my all-time favorite books, and that is The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. I love this book so much. I was showing Mark I own like four copies of this book. I'm almost sad to recommend it because I feel like I'm going to want to recommend it over and over and over again. So I may reserve the right to repeat myself later if that's okay with you guys. I could also get sidetracked uh, here gushing about just Patricia Highsmith in general and her writing and the nuance that she employs when creating these characters that are often really deeply flawed, um, but are still very relatable And each one of them is worth a read from first to last. But the talented Mr. Ripley, to me, is peak Highsmith. And so if you're going to pick one, this is the one. Like you, I don't want to spoil a lot, but I will give you kind of the bare bones. The story begins with an American. He's a nobody. His name's Tom Ripley. He's employed by uh, an old school acquaintance's um, father, a quite wealthy man, to go to Italy and retrieve his wayward son, Dickie Greenleaf. So off Tom goes to gorgeous, sun-soaked 1950s Italy, and he is immediately charmed by Dickie and his fabulous life and his incredible good looks and his just ease and cool sense of style. This is a world that Tom has never had access to, the kinds of people Tom has never been able to spend time with. And he decides that not only is he ready, not ready to take Dickie back to the U.S., he wants to stay for a while himself in Italy. And in fact, he would love to have Dickie's really lazy international playboy kind of lifestyle for himself. But he, you know, how do you do that? You don't have money. You don't have connections. And so he really starts to be uh, manipulate Dickie uh, and use his connections to get ahead and to insinuate himself into this kind of jet set group of friends. And as Tom's deceptions kind of start to add up, Dickie's friends in Europe, and in particular, his girlfriend, Marge, 
become real obstacles on Tom's path to this fabulous life that he's set his sights on. And we see Tom move from kind of a, like a scheming cipher to this full-on psychopath. <laughs> the real trick that Highsmith plays, though, is that even though I shouldn't be on Tom Ripley's side, I totally am. <laughs> you know, I may not agree with his methods, but you, it, it's easy to sympathize with his goals, right? Um, and as the lies pile up, you feel this sort of breathless kind of exhilaration that keeps you turning the pages. And you have to know how and if Tom Ripley is going to be able to pull off all of these audacious lies. He's the, kind of the ultimate anti-hero, and it is so much fun to read. And um, if you add that to Highsmith's really, she's so good at escalating tension and creating atmosphere that just pulses with unease. And it's clear why we love this book um, 70 years on. And well, I'll read it over and over. When you pick up your copies, though, you should probably go ahead and pick up Ripley's Game and Ripley Underground because you're going to want to keep reading more about this great character. And all the fantastic settings that Highsmith describes with really, really lush detail. Um, and I should mention, of course, the several screen adaptations of these books. My favorite of which, though, has to be um, Purple Noon, which is a French. <laughs> uh, Mark's a fan, so am I. A French version of the talented Mr. Ripley. And it's starring the ultra handsome and seriously cool Alan Delon. Uh, and that's available as a Criterion Collection um, Blu-ray. So it's there in our stores while you're grabbing your books. Fantastic. Oh, I could not have agreed with that with more aplomb. Absolutely Purple Noon. And and I think Talented Mr. Ripley is probably my favorite of Highsmith's books. But you're right, the way that she builds tension and sense of place and character study is really phenomenal. So nice choice, as usual. No surprise. But that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Poured Over. And please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye, Mark. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.